0: In chapter 6. From here on out, really, um, we get into the weeds, so to speak, in Revelation. So let me take some extra time to set up our study from here on out, really, tonight, if I could. If, If we study closely the experience of the disciples, we learn that it's much more likely as the followers of Jesus that we'll ask the wrong questions when we hear His truth than that we'll ask the right ones. The more Jesus taught... Uh, The more the disciples kept asking questions like, well, when? They were just like us, especially when it comes to the end. We want specifics and we want to take things that aren't specific and make them specific because uh, that makes them easier to see, makes them easier to predict or to track. But Jesus seemed much more interested in telling his disciples why or what for than he did in telling them when. And we need to remember this as we study the end times. You don't have to be a literary accountant or hair splitter to understand the teaching of Scripture on the end times. When the disciples were, uh, if you remember, blown away by the construction of the temple, Jesus said to them in Matthew 24 in that text, Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And then when they get later to the Mount of Olives, the questions that that teaching raised in them when Jesus said that, the questions they wanted to ask because of that started to come out. Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, that sounds like um, what most Bible studies or sermons on the end times are trying to do. When, what, uh, what will be the signs, what will they look like, and how frustrating The answer of Jesus was in that moment to those questions and still is in many ways. In verses 4 to 14 of Matthew 24, he didn't give an airtight calendar for these events. Instead, he spoke of terrifying trends in humanity that were signs of the end, but only symptoms of this fallen world's basically miserable modus operandi for all time. He gave them some clues to recognize the certainty of the temple's destruction But then he made a distinction between the visitation of that divine judgment, which occurred in 70 AD, and his personal coming, which would come later, and even is later to us, at the end of the age. And of that day and hour, Jesus says, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, not the Son, but the Father alone, in verse 36. So we have to ask, what would be the point of trying to nail it down? It isn't accessible information. So the questions of the disciples, when and what will be the sign of your coming, are inappropriate attempts to discern secrets that God has not made known. What Jesus does choose to tell us about the end serves more practical purposes, like our endurance and evangelism and vigilance as trials come. But even after the resurrection, even after the resurrection, when we come to Acts chapter 1, verse 6, as Jesus prepares to ascend, what are they still asking? They're obsessed with this. Lord, is it at this time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? So surely it's now. And he chastens them again in verse 7. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. I um, used to work in a Christian bookstore with uh, uh, guys and ladies that went to different churches. And I had friends that were... uh, Pentecostals, and they uh, believed that time was divided up into a literal six thousand year period, and so uh, the end, the seven thousandth year would come or the seven thousand you know period of years would be at the end and, and, and there I said but doesn 't it I would always ask this is before I was preaching i didn 't really know anything I would say but doesn 't it say no one can know the day or the hour and they said yes, but it doesn 't say you can 't know the year <laughs> so that 's one way around that, but i, I don 't personally trust personally, any end times teaching that, that tries to get very specific. I just, I don't think that's biblical. Because, beloved, here's here's the thing. All of our views of the end times aside, okay, notice what Jesus does turn their attention to in Acts chapter 1. He says, or, or notice what he does want them to know. Notice what he does want them to be passionate about. And pay attention to in Acts 1.8, the reason for his resurrection and impending enthronement. Their mission to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth and the coming Holy Spirit's arrival to empower them for that mission specifically. That's where he goes in Acts. So the victory of Jesus wasn't meant to turn our eyes to the future For more signs of his return, per se, it was meant to turn our eyes to the nations because he's victorious, and so now the mission must spread. That needs to be the focus of the church. We're obsessed with figuring out things that have mostly been hidden while we're neglecting the priority of Jesus, and I don't want to contribute to that in any way in my preaching or in my teaching. I will trade One hour of focus on mission over 50 hours on end time study. I just don't understand what we're so obsessed with. Um, One of us is right. One of us is wrong, but God is in control and he's going to do it how he wants to do it. You and I are called to be on mission. So Jesus not only rebuked their desire to nail him down on dates. He challenged their misconceptions about the boundaries of the kingdom there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. They're they're still seeking a, a, a restoration merely for Israel. You see that question, while through their witness, Jesus intends to ignite a worldwide expansion of his saving reign from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Our eyes are locked on Israel, and the eyes of Jesus are locked on all nations. Did they not remember God's promise in Isaiah 49, 6 to his suffering servant? It is too small a thing. That you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Do we remember this promise? Do we remember the priority of Jesus? So, beloved, rather than ever satisfying their curiosity about the win of the future, Jesus instead focused on the privilege, the opportunity, and the responsibility before us, as the church, given to us by His resurrection and His enthronement and the coming gift of the Holy Spirit from His eminent place at the Father's right hand. That's how Jesus begins to reign. He sends the Spirit for the mission. So, church, the future is fixed. It's settled. That's the way it's going to go. The Lord reigns. Our task is mission to the nations. It is not events, it is not dates, it is people. Revelation doesn't change this fact. John was summoned up to heaven in Revelation 4.1 to see what is going to happen as the future unfolds. God's secret plan er, for human history is hidden in the sealed up scroll. So when the Lamb takes it and begins to break the seals, we look to John to tell us what he sees. And we're, we're wanting to know when, what, how long. And yet again, instead of giving answers to these questions, what we get is this drawn-out process of unrolling the scroll that presents a series of pictures that answer the question we should have been asking in light of the text so far and its revelation of Jesus Christ. That question being, well, why, if the Lion who is the Lamb has conquered, is the world still a place of evil and violence and misery? I thought Jesus was Reigning, And and what do we use as evidence that he's not? We say, look at all the evil. Look at all the turmoil and violence in the world. How could Jesus be reigning right now? Revelation is probably the most confusing book in the Bible. Let's be honest. Maybe other than uh, Ezekiel or one of the larger prophetic books. But what's sad is that this confusion over how the book should be understood has caused Christians to separate. It's caused us to fight and to argue. The controversy... In the the, the lowercase c controversy, in the capital C controversy, that contributes to that division more than any other is probably the argument over the structure of the book of Revelation itself. In other words, what are we reading about? When does it take place? Etc. cetera. I, I don't think it's, it's off base to say that most American Christians, most, not all, and, and actually it's probably not most anymore, times have changed, but... Tend to read Revelation as if it's mainly describing the bulk of it. This relatively short time in the future, just before the coming of um, the coming of Jesus. Um, the futurist view, the very the, the very common view of how we read Revelation, popularized by uh, Tim LaHaye of late and, and Jerry Jenkins and the Left Behind books and these things. So, in that understanding, we've talked about this a little before. Chapter six through nineteen are describing what's going to take place in a seven-year time frame called the Great Tribulation, right before which Jesus will return, rapture all Christians from the earth before He pours out divine uh, divine judgment. So the question has to be asked, if that's the case, then does this section have any practical relevance to us at all, other than for us to read it and say, man, I'm glad I won't be here for any of that, right? I don't think the way Jesus talks to us and just talk to the church and his attitude, and it doesn't seem to lend itself to that kind of attitude. Well this I mean, I won't be over this, thank God, so I don't I can just play around with the details and all these kinds of things. And I do believe chapters six through nineteen are describing events at the end of human history, absolutely, that coincide directly with the second coming of Christ. I also believe, however, that these chapters describe events that are and have been taking place and will take place, from the ascension of Jesus to His second coming. So, chapters 6-19 through 19 describe in symbolic imagery the common experience and reality of human beings on earth over the past 1,900-2,000 years since Jesus ascended, and who knows how many more to come before Jesus comes back. If I, I hope this analogy might help, at least to understand what I'm trying to say, right? Imagine that you go to a football game and you have tickets to sit... Right on the 50 yard line, maybe 10 or 12 rows up from the bench. And that's how you watch the game. It's sitting right in front of you. It's, it's, you can see how many yards they gain on a, on a given play. You, you could, you're watching it horizontally. But then in the second quarter, you switch to one of the end zones and you're, um, you know, 50 rows up from the end zone. And so now instead of the game going back and forth in front of you, now it's going uh, vertically in front of you, and they're going away from you, and then they're coming at you rather than you just watching them side to side. And then you get a seat where you're up uh, in the nosebleed. You're in the top row, and you're looking down at it that way, and they look very little. And uh, then you see it from another view. You're in a blimp, and you're watching uh, you know, the, the Goodyear blimp. You're watching the whole game unfold, and now they're really tiny, but you can still see the movements of the game. So you're watching the same exact football game from different angles, different perspectives, imagine how different that is each perspective you, you many of you have probably been to a football game so you you know the difference between watching it um live watching it on TV and all those kinds of things that's very similar to what is happening in the book of revelation i think that makes the most sense justifiably of the text it's called recapitulation or repetition i i think we're seeing the same thing from different angles throughout most of the book of Revelation, Through these multiple visions, John is being given the description of events that span the entire church age from the first to the second coming of Jesus. The whole expanse of church history, of world history, really. Sometimes the view is panoramic. Sometimes the view is on one person or one trend in that time period. But when he invites us to sit down to show us what's happening, he, he might not show us the precise or even chronological order of the events, he's describing the same event. He describes it to us in highlights. It's it's still the same events. It's the same game. We just look at it from different vantage points. I believe John does this often through Revelation. Some biblical scholars define seven parallel sections in Revelation which act like seven different camera angles strategically placed throughout human history. Okay? that describe the common conditions of human history since the ascension of Jesus. We even remember Jesus talking like this would be the case. It'll be like it was in the days of Noah. And what was going on in the days of Noah? Nothing spectacular. Normal, everyday human life. They were marrying, being given in marriage. They just didn't honor God or give thanks to Him. So, John will finish one section. He'll bring us to the end of everything. He'll bring us to the second coming. Then he'll circle back recapitulate it, repeat it from a different perspective. And so the main focus of Revelation is on three series of seven judgments. Everybody can agree on that much. One poured out for each of the seven seals, followed by the seven bowls that contain the wrath of God that's poured out on the earth. The seven seals, trumpets, and bowls describe events throughout the course of history between the first and second coming of Jesus. So very soon after the ascension, as we can see in Scripture, or possibly the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. or in 90 A.D. when John saw this vision, all of the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments began to be manifested and poured out. But part of the reason why I believe this is there's something very intriguing that happens in Revelation. And we see it here in chapter 6 for the first time in the book. Early on in Revelation, when, what is, when things are poured out, you see that, for example here, a fourth of mankind... Is affected by these things. Later on, we'll read that a third of mankind is affected by these things. The intensification of these things is clear from Scripture. The closer you get to the end, the worse things become. Then at the end of the bull judgments, what happens? The whole earth is included in the judgments of God's wrath. So at any point in the course of what is happening, In the world, we might be looking at a partial judgment that's limited, somewhat restricted. Other times we're seeing what is a more intensified judgment in terms of its closeness to the coming consummation. So, Revelation is not solely concerned. It is concerned, but not solely concerned with what happens right before the return of Jesus. Though it does address that. And much of what we read here will coincide directly with the second coming. But these things have also been happening in one sense. And will keep happening until he returns. And I'm telling you, you can't deny that. And we'll talk about it a little bit specifically in a few moments. And they will intensify to their worst state ever immediately before the return of Jesus. These multiple sections in the book recapitulate. They repeat. They come back around. Each one begins with his first coming. Each one concludes with his second coming. And with each one, there's this ever-increasing intensification of wrath and judgment and the devastation that's brought to bear on the earth. Each section of John's book then is like each of the many cameras placed throughout a stadium during a game. In each section, generally speaking, John is describing one period of time, like each camera is on the same game with a different focus depending on what he's describing, what he's telling to the church. Remember, this is part of the letter each of those seven churches in Asia are getting and he's talking to them. Don't forget this. And I hope these things will become clearer as we study. In the opening of the first four seals in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 tonight, Jesus uses, ordains evil heavenly forces to inflict trials on people throughout the church age for either purification, as we've seen in the letters, or punishment, as we're reading here. In chapter 5, John found himself standing in the presence of the glorious Lord, weeping. Because no one was qualified to open the scroll that contains the course and contents of human history. But then we heard a voice tell him, weep no more. Because there is one who is worthy and able to direct history to God's designed consummation. The lion of the tribe of Judah who is the lamb that was slain. So in our grateful rejoicing that the lion and the lamb has conquered, we must also recognize the reality of coming judgment and be resolute to proclaim this news to all nations. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John. And Father, I ask that you would heal our confusion, our misunderstanding, our division over these things, God. I pray that we would be charitable, that we would be open, all of us, to hear the word I pray, Father, that You would do a miracle of Your grace in this moment, that we might understand Your truth as Your people, that You might turn the eyes of our hearts to You and what is on the mind and the heart of Your Son, who is the head of this body, Your church. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come now. We know from 1-5, from two twenty six and 27, and from 5-1-14 that Jesus Christ, as of this moment, has received all authority from the Father. We know that from Matthew 28. And has begun to reign, therefore, with that authority over the kingdoms of the earth. The first four seals describe to us how this authority He has extends even over the suffering that happens Or the suffering sent from the hand of God in these verses to purify the saints, to purge His church, and to punish unbelievers. For the churches, the seven churches are asking the question as they face what they're facing, is God sovereign over our circumstances if, John, you're saying that Jesus is reigning, right? Jesus is answering. He's saying this apparently chaotic world is ruled over as it stands by the Lion and the Lamb in chapter 5. In fact... The destructive events happening in creation to people and to the church because they're in the world are brought about by Jesus for both his redemptive and judicial purposes. So the opening of the seals coincides in our understanding with Jesus having taken up his position at the right hand of God in chapter 5. The events presented here then begin to take place immediately upon his enthronement. And will continue until it returns. That helps us in one way make sense of the exhortations that seem as immediate as they are to them as they are to us in the seven churches in Asia in the first century to persevere in the midst of suffering. It's as relevant to them as it is now to us. This suffering that's unleashed by the opening of the seals had already begun to take place even in the lives of those seven churches. Some of them were feeling it more than others, but they were all beginning And these things that God is describing here, that the the horses are representing, are not just random accidents of nature. These are literal, divinely ordained judgments of God against an unbelieving world that we happen to be in. The disasters of which we're about to read are the same ones seen by the four judgments of Ezekiel, chapter 14, verses 12-21. through Sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, as well as the judgments... Prophesied by our Lord Jesus in Matthew 24, 6 to 28. War, famine, persecution. I think pestilence is mentioned in Luke. Notice in those texts that these disasters happen side by side. In those, we need to understand that. They happen side by side. And implying that these various calamities in the four seals occur at the same time rather than in any particular order per se. Also, We'll see, God willing, when we meet next to go through Revelation, the glorified saints that show up in verses 9 through 11 of Revelation 6 have appeared to suffer under all four of these seals, meaning they took place during the same general period. So following on from chapter 5, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6 are describing destructive forces that began to be unleashed on the world immediately following the victorious suffering of Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension to the position of Ultimate authority in the universe, of course, the Father's right hand. The Old Testament prophecies that we saw alluded to time and again in chapters 1 through 3, as beginning to be fulfilled with the death and resurrection of Jesus, help us understand that. If we put their fulfillment at that time, now we can make more sense of what we read about the future. And as a result of his reign, as a result of the fact that he is reigning, what does the lamb and the lion do in chapter 6? He empowers each of the coming horsemen... To pour this out through his angelic servants. Meaning they're not signs that he's not in control. They're proof that he's in control and reigning. Don't forget that. These same trials intended to purify the church as the letters to the churches make clear. Also serve as punishment even now for those who reject the kingship of Jesus. And they're only going to stop when he returns literally bodily in power and in glory. Which is what the whole context of chapter 6 will show us that cry, how long, that comes with the fifth seal. And the final judgment coming at the sixth seal shows that these events take place before final judgment. We also infer from Zechariah 1, 8 through 8-15, if you remember, and its presentation of the four horses, that these four signify natural, political, economic disasters throughout the world to judge unbelievers who persecute God's people, as well as to vindicate God's people. Look at verse 2. And I looked and behold a white horse and his rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So one of the four living creatures summons the first horse, which is a white horse, whose rider has a bow and is sent out conquering and to conquer. Now, there are again various ways that people read this. Some see this as uh, the exalted Christ reigning, conquering through the gospel at a certain uh, you know, period in history. Even though white is used 14 times in Revelation to signify purity, I believe this is a satanic parody of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read the scriptures, right, Satan constantly tries to mimic uh, or parody Jesus to persecute or to deceive his people and appear as righteous, as we know he would from 2 Corinthians 11.14, or to do both. Right? Notice the four horsemen form a unified quartet. They're all basically doing the same thing, but each one has a unique color that's suitable to the aspect of judgment they bring. That same phrase characterizes all of them, was given to them, was given to them. That occurs with all four and is repeated throughout the passage. Nowhere in Revelation is Jesus said to carry a bow. That's not what we read about him. He's always holding a sword if he's holding something. This is the divinely authorized power given to Satan, I believe, to mock Jesus and portray himself as the Christ, the anti-Christ, finally embodied by the beast in Revelation chapter 17. The white horse characterizes every sort of oppression and tyranny brought about by war and violence, by conquering. That's the catch-all phrase for all of this turmoil. The next three horsemen, if you look are our detailed description of the summary statement of that white horse, he brings war. The others bring characteristics of war, both physical and Spiritual effects, verses 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So the second horse is red. He has power to take peace from the earth so that people will kill each other. This includes the martyrdom of Christians here. That word kill or slay in this text is always used in Revelation to describe what happened to Jesus and what happened to those who follow him who are martyred. That's the word, 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, this would be the voice of Christ, I believe, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. So the third horse, a black horse, brings famine. In the ancient world, a denarius was the wage for one day of labor. One quart of wheat cost one-eighth of a denarius commonly. So if you had to give a full denarius, a full day's work for just one quart of wheat, that means that food is very scarce. A pair of scales stood for a time of famine in the ancient world when food was rationed out to people by scales or on scales. this famine is serious, it's real, but it isn't completely devastating to the whole world. A quart of wheat is available, and that's enough to feed a family um, you know for, for at least a few days with other things. Three quarts of barley would last three days for a family. The oil and the wine that represent more luxurious items, higher priced items, they're not affected by this horse's famine. But it would only be available, those types of things, probably to the very wealthy, since everyone else is apparently spending all that they have on the basics. So there is scarcity and there is plenty, which helps us see the third horse as describing for us the economic imbalance we've seen in the world throughout all human history. Parts of the world have so much abundance they can make desserts called death by chocolate, right? If you ever go to, I think it's uh, Garfield's, death by chocolate. You can trivialize death with a dessert in America. There aren't any death by chocolate jokes in Ethiopia, right? So it's it. And again, I'm not I'm not criticizing us. I'm saying look at look at the difference. That that's how it has always been in the world. There's plenty and there's scarcity everywhere, all the time. And to this day, in places like India or many Muslim countries, when natural disasters occur, um, relief is often denied by governments to Christians because they refuse to compromise with worldly, spiritual, and economic, and social systems. So look at verse, uh, in other words, none of us are wondering whether or not we're going to eat tomorrow. Right? If, if you are, please tell us. We can get you food. Okay, And I mean that with all my heart. And everyone in this church believes that and agrees with that if you're hungry. But for the most part, we aren't worrying about whether or not we're going to eat tonight or tomorrow or even Wednesday or on Christmas. There are Christians in the world literally right now that not only don't know if they're going to eat today, they don't know if they're going to eat tomorrow. They don't know if they're going to eat by Wednesday. So this is characteristic of the whole age in which we live. And then in verses 7 and 8, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. They, right? To kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So, Death and Hades, Hades being the abode of the dead, have a satanic nature to them that we'll see later in chapter 20, verses 13 and 14, but these are also two things over which our Lord Jesus is said to have conquered. And we read that immediately in chapter one. Remember, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, so they're his servants of judgment. And here they're given authority by God to inflict death on a fourth of the earth by means of war, famine, pestilence and wild beasts. But again, notice that when you hear that. Their ability is limited at this point in verse 8, a fourth of the earth. Now, I don't think we need to force that to mean exactly 25% of the world. I I don't think that's the point of saying a fourth. The point is that their judgment is limited and partial. It's not total over the whole earth. Whether this happens at once or throughout history isn't really clear. But the point is that at any point in human history, we might see these judgments extending to one part of the earth. And at other times, the greater parts of the earth are more parts of the earth. And we might want to ask, well, if these things are God's judgments on the earth, are we working against Him if we you know, feed the hungry or clothe the poor? Beloved, no, those things happen at the same time. Disease entered the world through sin, right? Jesus healed disease, even though all this was coming. Serving others, even our enemies, is one of the main ways to display to the nations that we belong to Jesus, that He's a... Savior. So yes, these judgments come from God. They don't nullify any of the responsibilities the church has to alleviate suffering in His name as we're able. These means serve God's ends, all of them. But maybe you're asking at this point, and it, I, I'm not patronizing it. I, I wonder if any are asking in their head, well, do these four horsemen really sufficiently describe the time since the ascension of Christ? Because they seem very apocalyptic. They seem very heavy. So could we say these things have been being displayed since the time of Jesus? Is that a fair assessment of the text? Let's just consider the last 1900 years of human history. Okay. Let's just, let's just look at, in fact, in that, let's look at one century. Let's look at the 20th century, 1900 to 1999. You remember that Hitler slaughtered over 6 million Jews, right? Nobody needs reminded of that. Mao Tung slaughtered tens of millions of his political enemies in communist China. Pol Pot, the ruler of Cambodia, slaughtered 2 million of the 10 million people in his country after the Vietnam War. The greatest recorded mass murderer in human history, Joseph Stalin, killed by conservative estimates 20 million of his own countrymen, three times what the Holocaust did. At least, some say it's closer to 30 million. And we can't even cite all the wars in this time period, this 1900 years in the Civil War. 640,000 Americans died in the Civil War. We're not far from the Mason-Dixon line. We're not far from Gettysburg, Antietam, places like this. More than 41 million died around the world in World War I. More than 60 million in World War II. In Vietnam, 1.3 million. In fact, a study of the world from 1870 to 2000. That's just 130 years documented. So these are the known ones. More than 3,168 wars during that time. Just 1870 to 2000. 130 years. Over 3,000 wars. Does that suffice for you will see wars and rumors of wars? Do you see what Jesus is saying? When was that not the case? Then there's the suffering of humanity as a result of pestilence and famine. And we know of wild beasts and the strife that comes there and shark attacks, lion attacks, things like this, bears. But then there's the suffering of humanity as a result of pestilence and famine. Here's just a few. Okay. In 165 A.D., the 2nd century, the first known emergence of smallpox broke out in the Roman Empire. Over the next 15 years, it spread to the point that estimates are from anywhere to one quarter to one half of the entire population of the world died from smallpox. Then consider just the end of, let's take the 17th century. From 1692 to 1694, 15% of the entire population of France starved to death from famine. That's 2.8 million people in three years that starved to death. There was a famine in Estonia in 1695 that killed a fifth of the population there. In 1696, nearly a third of the population of Finland died from starvation. We don't even know of these things. Then the Black Death, the bubonic plague, the most horrific plague to ever strike mankind, begin in the 1330s, in Central or East Asia, it was carried by fleas. Fleas, of course, infected rats. Rats were uh, ships going to Europe back and forth were filled with rats. And so the most conservative low-end estimate of bubonic plague is that 75 million people died from it. Upper estimates are more than 200 million people died from the bubonic plague. In England alone, four out of every ten people died from bubonic plague. In the city of, let's take one city, one major city, in Florence, Italy, 50,000 of its 100,000 person population at the time died from bubonic plague, half of the people. In March of 1520, the Spanish fleet arrived in Mexico when the population of Mexico at that time, what we know as Mexico, was about 22 million people. Eight months later, only 14 million people remained. Eight million died in eight months, the culprit being smallpox. Within 60 years of the arrival of the Spaniards in Mexico, the population dropped from 22 million to 2 million people. The British explorer James Cook if you know that name, arrived in Hawaii in 1778. This is the 18th century. At that time, Hawaii had a very concentrated population of about 500,000 people. The British men introduced flu, tuberculosis, syphilis, typhoid, and smallpox. 75 years later, the population was down to 70,000. 430,000 people died. In January of 1918, it's now the 20th century, back there at the end of World War I, the Spanish flu broke out initially among soldiers in uh, northern France and, the, and the, you know the trenches there, and within just a few months, uh, or actually um, within just a few months from Spanish flu, half a billion people worldwide were infected. That's nearly a third of the Earth's population at that time, beloved. And that was over a 100 years ago. Deaths ranged anywhere from 50 to 100 million. Then as of today, as we stand right now, by our best estimates, more than 30 million have died of AIDS since we knew that's what it was called. So do we see wars, pestilences and famines and violence and an obsession with conquering manifested by violence and death throughout history? Beloved, come on. There is no question. There is no question, and it's intensifying, and it's going to get worse. And it will get even worse than worse just before the return of Jesus. So I don't think these judgments describe one particular war or famine or plague. This is human history that the ascended Christ has directed from the moment of his enthronement. Jesus reigning doesn't look like we think it would. It doesn't mean he isn't reigning. And against the backdrop of eternity, this is a set time, but God's on his throne. When has this not been the case in human history? When? It's always been the case. It's always going to seem like the end, because the end began when Jesus ascended, beloved. He didn't ascend to a place of probation waiting to reign. He ascended to the Father's right hand. For me, that is the issue in determining our eschatology, our theology of the end times. Where is Jesus? And what does the Bible describe happens once He is at that place? That's how I think we need our understanding to be shaped when it comes to the end times. Even though these are partial judgments, they are encompassing the entire cosmos for is the number in Revelation of universality. So, just as you had four living creatures that represent the praise of all the redeemed throughout the entire creation in chapter 4, so the plagues of these four horsemen symbolize the suffering of many throughout the earth that continues until the return of Jesus. There's no precise historical background that can fully account for the meaning of these judgments in Revelation 6. All time periods fit Revelation 6. And it's Jesus who summoned The four horsemen, beloved, that's because he's reigning through his death and resurrection. Jesus Christ has made the forces of evil in this world. His agents to execute his purposes of both sanctification for his church and judgment for the world so that his kingdom will advance again. These things are proof that Jesus is reigning right now when you look around the world. Bringing about His purposes for all creation. He's on His throne. This is what He's called and carrying out in the world. Jesus has power over death and Hades back in 118. And He now uses that power over them to make them agents of His will. Just as at the cross, God was winning and losing, in a sense. Victorious and defeated, in a sense. Righteous and sin, in a sense. So just like Jesus, the apparent defeat, apparent defeat of those who do not give in, as John told the churches, is their spiritual victory. Remember, beloved, Jesus told us, using the same list of these deadly afflictions, back in Luke 21, 9-11, what did he say? They do not mean that the end has come yet. The end is not yet when you see these very same things. Beloved. So don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't be overcome by terror and by alarm when you see all these things. Remember, this is not God's wrath towards us, that's not what we're experiencing. Jesus delivered us from God's wrath. So what we suffer is never God's wrath on us, it's his instrument, like we read in Romans 5 this morning to strengthen our faith, to contribute to our endurance. That's what us being here for the pouring out of these things does for the church. But also, beloved, remember this means that our security isn't bound up with the human realities of law and order. But in the Lamb who is on the throne right now, with God's plan for history that He has decreed safely in His hands, safely being carried out. This is the ongoing message to the church of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 4 and 5, the prophet Daniel's vision from Daniel 7, 9 through 14 about the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man has been fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, that's why you see in Daniel 7, the Son of Man ascending. It's his ascension. But there's also in Daniel 7, 2 through 8, the vision of the four evil beasts who represent those evil kingdoms that will wage war on the saints. And in John's vision here of the four horsemen, the latter part of Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled. But we also see that the exalted place of Jesus gives him authority over these evil forces to the extent that he uses their evil intentions to accomplish his ultimate good, the judgment of unbelievers and the purification of his saints. This is an effect, Revelation 6 an effect of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, beloved. The suffering of the cross has been turned into his triumph, and not just for him, but for his people. His sovereignty shows this. The four horsemen are equivalent to the four evil kingdoms of Daniel 7. The four horsemen represent the evil spiritual counterparts to those kingdoms. Both Daniel's four kingdoms and Zechariah's four sets of horses in 6-5 are linked to the four winds of heaven, and Daniel 7-2. So Jesus Christ has begun to fulfill Daniel's prophecy of the Son of Man's exaltation over evil, over the beastly kingdoms of the world, which will be alluded to later explicitly in Revelation twelve three, Revelation 13-1-2. Well, what do we take from a text like Revelation 6-1-8? Beloved, first of all, gratitude. Thanksgiving. The wrath of God that we deserved and that the unbelieving world will suffer was poured out on Jesus for you and I. And we will never taste it, ever, or experience it. Praise Jesus Christ. Gratitude, beloved. Thanksgiving. We are safe. In the midst of this storm, we are on the ark right now while it's pouring outside. But secondly, we should take from this text an urgent call to evangelize Moundsville and the Ohio Valley and the nations of this world, including our own. All right. Again. We can always agree to disagree on the details of the end, and that's fine. I'm serious. It's fine. We don't even need to get our pants in a bundle over it. It's okay. Alright? I'm, I'm fine with being proven wrong on this one. I, I that's fine. Right? I'm, I'm, beloved, I'm, can we just put that aside for just a minute? Okay? Just hear me out as your pastor. There is an urgent need for the lost in this world. Tonight. All right. Tonight. Right now. Right now. There are countless billions of people in our world right now who still abide only under the wrath of God, and it's only going to get worse. This doesn't describe what it will be like at the end. This, beloved, that will be much worse. Church, we have to wake up. We have to wake up. In other words, look, we don't have time to split hairs over this. We don't have time. And it... it, The lost are all around us. They're all around us. They're everywhere. The majority of the people we meet are right now, if they were to slip off into eternity, going to eternal punishment and condemnation right now. The people we bump into on the street and bump into in stores and restaurants and all these places. Beloved, they're eternal souls in front of you. The point of revelation for Moundsville Baptist Church is to wake us up to be the church. And a church that isn't on mission has no right calling itself a church of Jesus Christ. No right whatsoever. So, we want to know the word. We want to be accurate and rightly divided. Absolutely. Absolute, no question. But beloved, there is a priority. And the priority for us is the souls of people in the name of Jesus Christ. We are light here. We have a building. Everybody knows where we are. Oh, you a big brick church over on 4th? Yep, that's us. That's us. I was in Panera Bread Friday studying this. I was there for like five hours. There's a couple sitting at the table right here in front of me. And I feel like the lady's staring at me. I can feel it. You know how you feel it? And she staring her husband's back to me. She's just staring at me for probably a half hour. Finally, I look up and make eye contact. Like, are we okay? And she says, you're the minister. I said, yeah, yeah. She goes, the Baptist church in Moundsville? I said, yep. She goes, okay. I'm like, oh, cool. All right. Well, that was fun. You know, that was what that was about. I forgot why I'm telling you that story. Oh, that's frustrating. I'm sorry. I can't, can't remember. Beloved, there's a priority. The souls of people are a priority. All right. And look, I know, I know that matters to you, or I wouldn't be here. Okay, not because I'm so special, but what would be the point of that, right, for any of us? Let's pray together to be the church that Jesus desires us to be. And look, if my views on the end times are wrong, then beloved, when we're floating up, you point at me and laugh. It's totally fine. I was wrong then, so be it. Thank God. But this one, the need of people, we, we can't, that's a non-negotiable, right? That's a non-negotiable. So these things are wonderful to study and to learn, and so do that all you want to. Don't hear me degrading that. I'm just saying, don't forget that why we're here is out there, and probably in here too. Okay?